Welcome to the Prize of Possibility podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mitch Ablett. I have a strong belief that the greatest prizes in life are hidden in plain sight. They are the nuances, the nooks and crannies of everyday moments that are easily missed. Join me in these conversations with authors and influencers and researchers to miss fewer of them, to truly claim these prizes. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Prize of Possibility. I'm very excited to be reunited with uh, a friend who I have not, we're, we're kind of in person, we're in the Zoom space, but the last time we spoke, we were in person over coffee and whatnot, but that was well before the pandemic. I'm here with Rose Felix Kratzley, and she is the founder, president, and CEO of Ivy Child International. Uh, which is an international nonprofit that develops mindfulness and cross-cultural uh, educational programming, uh, educational programming, which is awesome. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Rose. We're going to talk about our, our shared interest in mindfulness and kids and bringing this into communities in ways that connects. So Rose, thank you for, for joining me. It's so awesome to see you. So delighted to be here with you, Mitch, and wonderful to see you as well. It's been too long. I'm excited to spend some time together. Yes, yes. So I'll, I'll, I'll kick us off. Uh, we were chatting briefly before I hit record, and you know we're going to keep this organic as I as I try to do. So no no you know long list of prep questions, you know because I, I think there's an organic nature to your work. Although there's lots of details and lots of planning, but there's a there's an organic aspect to mindfulness itself, right? Um, yes. Talk talk to talk to me, talk to the listeners about Ivy Child and you know in general what it's about and what what you're looking to bring forward. Sure, absolutely. So mindfulness is really a practice that is very very personal to me. Um, my family hails from uh, Kerala, India, and I was um, fortunate be, to be born into the practice. My parents immigrated from India first to Ethiopia in Africa and from Africa to the U.S. where I was born and uh -huh. shared many, many um, ideals, values, uh, rituals and traditions um, that are deep rooted to our both heritage and culture. And so it was a real gift I was given. So when I'm often asked, how was I introduced to this practice and how long I've been practicing? Um, the real honest answer is within my mother's womb. I've been practicing yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, since then. <laughs> and um, for me, as I grew and evolved, both as a child, it was something that was very much intertwined into my life and a gift I was given as a kid. And the vision um, for Ivy Child has been, how do we give that gift to children across um, our communities? Um, so through, you know, careful and intentional partnership with uh, systems of education and care, we offer a variety of mindfulness offerings, both through direct service um, programming with our children and our youth, yeah. as well as all the adults that interface with our kids and youth. So whether yes. that be educators or providers at large, um, through professional development and learn leadership learning exchanges, but really in an effort to transform what I call intergenerational suffering into mm. intergenerational well-being that's an important that's concept i'm gonna i'm gonna mentally bookmark that and come back i i want to go back though because i i will lose it 
with my ADHD self over here. I'll lose track of it. You know, that you said that, and you told me this before, and but it's really, it's always resonated with me, very different than my path into meditation, into mindfulness, that you, it started in the womb. You know, you, you, it was your family ethos and that I'm really struck by that sense of community and family around it. And, you know, I just, I, it, it seems obvious that that then became just the way your ground of being around meditation, mindfulness practice, that it would inherently have a connective communal aspect and how you would want to bring it out into the world. Is that accurate or am I making stuff absolutely. up? No, absolutely. It was absolutely a uniting force in uh, enhancing relationship and bond and connection and deep engagement with my family and their my community and then my world. And that's really what we call um, the mindfulness multiplier effect is that, you know, not only does it enhance the direct well-being of each individual, but then their family and community and world. And so if, our, if we're able to, you know, enhance our own personal well-being, that will have a natural ripple effect and impact around those around us. And so um, that was really, uh, you know, a gift like I shared I was given. Yeah. And it's something that I, could, I, I really wish to multiply with the communities that we serve. Yeah, I like that mindfulness multiplier. You know, I, I've experienced since I've been a you know meditation practitioner that when practicing with others, when it's when there's a community come, it really is a multiplier. It really you know takes what my my initial experience of mindfulness practice was, which was very solo, very inside myself. And I knew of, you know, compassion practice, but I do it solo. You know, I was not, I was not part of a community, a sangha, you know, and, and, you know, and, and that changed, you know, I'm, and yet the pandemic has definitely led to an isolation again. I, I just, I don't know. I think that's so important that it, um, it, there are many people that may be listening that they have a mindfulness practice. Maybe they want to bring it to their kids, but it, as someone who cranks out mindfulness related, you know, content, you know, for kids, for adults, it, I, I, I worry about that, that there's at times either due to the adult and their own practice being very solo, not a communal aspect that, well, how do I get this into my individual kid versus what is the context of compassion, mindfulness practice in our household, in our school, in our community? Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a framing that seems to be important. It seems to be what your organization, what you focus on, which is super cool. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I mean, as I reflect on my own upbringing and how we manifest this work day to day in the work we do at Ivy Child, you know, as a kid, you know, we practice from the moment we woke up, um, you know, moments before sharing a meal together. 
uh, moments as soon as we got in the car and we were traveling together, moments wow. before we rested our head. And so it was intertwined really throughout our day. And that's like the periods of both formal and informal practice. Yes. We didn't have the luxury of retreats, <laughs> I would say, yeah. that we that uh, some have now is the luxury of going away and going on retreat to practice. Re you know, practice was every moment of engagement. Um, wow. was an opportunity for practice every moment we were together and so I often you know kind of you know I think about it and laugh now because even with raising you know our own children you know um, we have five children uh -huh. and, and three generations living in the same town so life is very full and two for babies um, who make our, our lives uh, full of delight as well yes. and what we have found is that, um, you know, as we have raised our children, you know, in America, uh, with similar practices of leaning into car ride as an opportunity to practice mindfulness, and them interacting with their friends and their social circles and world and realizing, I remember my son coming home one day and saying, Amma, nobody else does this. <laughs> nobody else is meditating in the car. Nobody else is practicing. And, you know, and really that realization for them of how foreign this experience is, right? You know, we, yes. I was, we were so conditioned both when I grew up and what we do with our own children as to like how we enter, you know, how we weave this into our day to day and how, and uh, the realization that there is a cultural collision, that this is not um, the norm per se, you know, in, in their life and in the world, particularly with their peers. I, I can't help but think like a shrink here and like, uh, not to, not to analyze you and your, your family, <laughs> but to actually make, give a compliment to it, that it's very consistent, you know, that model of it just being infused in the family with, you know, you use the word conditioned, you know, you know, the habits and therefore of mindfulness practice, the cueing to, to practice, you know, it's not just the formal time on a cushion, you know, that growing up with it infuse informally on a daily basis, that promotes the generalization of the, of the skills and the, the practice of the skills so that it, it isn't something that is only, okay, I did my, my 15 minutes on my app. Now I've meditated. Now I'm going to go do my real life. This is life, you know, and then yes. you, in real moments of interaction. And this is where I think you and I really overlap those interpersonal moments, those family moments, those work moments, you know, we're all in all these we spaces every day even over the zoom space that is you know, that's not talked about enough in terms of that being a practice time and that's and that's so important i think for kids and for adults yes absolutely i mean i think each opportunity you know uh if we lean into the moments we have together as an opportunity to be, uh to practice and for us like life is you know almost rarely quiet or, or almost never <laughs> well, right five kids yeah. and a non-profit and, yeah, I, i'd imagine right. it's full to use your yes, word <laughs> yes and so and so even including practice right we, so we rarely if not ever you know um practice quietly we practice through sound we practice through music mm. and movement and um in our home language and uh through song and so the value of 
aligning our practice with um, things that are meaningful to us uh, have brought such a wonderful vibration <laughs> to yeah, our practice. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, you know, it's, it's, um, it's been a great, because life isn't quiet, you know, when is life quiet in the chaos? Like, how do you create quiet and chaos? And for us, you know, like I said, music, sound and movement has been an incredibly healing and nourishing modality, uh, which is much of what we do in diversifying the modalities in which we offer mindfulness programming mm -hmm. to our cross-cultural communities through Ivy Child. We really lean in to both the cultural assets and the intersectionality mm -hmm. that our uh, communities are comprised of. And we really ensure that it is customized to reflect um, our community. That, that is crucial because it's all, you know, their community and their culture already matters to them deeply. And so if the mindfulness uh, education is tailored to, to dovetail with that, there's an, an automatic healthy pull for them into that content, right? Has that been what you've found as you've been, as Ivy Child has been going out and delivering these programs? What we're finding is that when we inherently honor the dignity of all people mm. and help elevate their voices and their stories um, and the unique composition of, make, of what makes them who they are, um, not only are we um, connecting and developing deep-rooted relationships in community, we create a circle of psychological safety mm. in order for them to heal to grow, to learn, to share. Um, and then from there, the possibilities are really limitless. That, that relationship aspect, how, how much does, have you experienced it after you've, you know, the organization has done an educational program and, and really brought in the mindfulness, brought in the, the, the cross-cultural focus that people are returning and, and, and not just to like more programs, but they're offering to you and offering to others via that, uh, that connection made through the program. Are, are you seeing like the synergy? I'm imagining just from my own experience that when a true community focus is, is made, there's this organic synergy that starts to happen and people start returning and giving and reaching out and whatnot. What, what have you found? I have found that the heart of all of our work and its evolution has been built on trusted and deep-rooted relationship. And the connections that people are willing to bring and share and connect and offer both of themselves and people they know in community, um, you know, trust is at, the, is at the heart and center of it all. And so we have seen, I would say, uh, many benefits and blessings um, to developing that safe container together. Um, oftentimes, that's the only time when when people have that consistency and that um, you know folks leaning in with that courage and care and understanding and allowing people to be both seen um, and feel safe. Yes. and feel soothed, um, you know, uh, given their circumstances, it matters. Um, yeah. and, and, and really upholding that each individual and their own inherent dignity matters. And that's really, you know, goes back to the heart of, of what we do day to day at Ivy Child. You know, this is reminding me that um, I was talking this week with a, 
a, a shared colleague in the mindfulness world, uh, Chris Willard. I think you, Yay! you, yeah, you yes. know Chris. Yes, I love um, Chris. Give him and, my love. And, yes, and he and I were talking about how sometimes in giving a talk, you know, he and I have given a lot of talks to educators or clinicians and whatnot. You know, sometimes either due to one or the other of us not being super prepped, you know, hope, hopefully none of the vendors are listening, but, uh, <laughs> or, or just for whatever reason, it, it felt like, oh man, that content wasn't really on today. And yet what I, and, and yet each of us has been surprised that even though we felt like the content wasn't really golden, people were so receptive to it. And, and, you know, what I threw out there, not to, and this may sound like an excuse to not like put in the work around creating content, because I, I think that matters. Um, but people seem to really be hungry for presence mm. uh, more than content, like to truly feel a co-presence and the content becomes secondary. They, you know, they want to feel felt. They want to feel seen. They want that. I love that term because it's so true. The intergenerational suffering. You know, they need an honoring of this and a, a sense that there's a path, you know, toward healing and connection. And But, you know, people seem to really be drawn in by, you know, the shared presence and shared compassion more than content. Absolutely. I don't think there's a cookie cutter approach to, um, you know, really living mindfully, right? And, you know, and really bridging efforts towards our own and collective healing. And so, yeah, the, the power of presence, right? Like we have yeah, a plan, yeah. we have a game plan of what we're leaning into, but ultimately there's many times that game plan goes out the window and you really have to honor uh, what is happening in that moment, you know, with the folks that you are, you know, with and uh, serving. So yeah. um, I think that uh, that enhanced awareness and uh, understanding and sort of humble learning is yes. ongoing, you know, even for, for us as practitioners and teachers and facilitators, I think that is great wisdom leaning into the space of just like an openness of what is to come and may come. Right, right. And in there is an inherent, uh, you know, I, I've multiple talks, not every talk, you know, but multiple talks I've given, I completely have lost my train of thought and gotten completely stuck. And in the old days, before I was a meditator and whatnot, long before when I was a TA in grad school, I would get a surge of anxiety, I'd start freaking out. And I would you know, the ego would come in looking to protect me. And, you know, I would start making stuff up, I'd start hedging. And then there was the day that a student in class, this is back in the days of overhead projectors, you know, long before using PowerPoint. And I was lost. And I'm just like making stuff up to try and cover up the fact that I was confused. And this student, this like uh, smart ass student, he, uh, you know, he point, he's like, really, that's your, that, that's your response to that? Because it says the complete opposite up on the overhead. <laughs> <laughs> and I, again, like, oh, well, you know, here's why I'm saying it. versus, you know, just standing there and looking at people and 
like here I am standing here in this moment and I'm noticing, you know, heart racing and yeah. palm sweating and my mind is racing with thoughts like I have, I just completely lost my train of thought. And, you know, the times, a couple of times that I've just let myself talk from that confusion and anxiety, people seem to really respond to that. Like that, that's a better way to teach the content than what I had on the, on the PowerPoint. There's just something about, there's something connective when we own error. How much do we see a need for that these days? You know, like, you know, mm -hmm. the highest mm -hmm. levels being able to own like, Hey, you know what? I messed up like authentically and in communities, large and small, like, you know, I did whatever I did and this is impacting you versus I did it on purpose or not. And so there's, there's so much stuff. And this is what I spend all my time thinking about and trying to write about, like, what is it that it's mindfulness, but it's really we-ness. It's the, that co-presence, how to practice it, how to be cued for it and how to build it in our systems. While giving ourselves that space and permission to be human right? yeah. and experience this spectrum of human emotion and all that will surge and ebb and flow as life goes on, because we've all been in those moments of the unknown, whether it be confusion or shame or upset or anger or anguish or and all of it. And yes. how do we work through that in a way that's hopefully non-judgmental and not continuing to criticize ourselves. And, yes. Um, you know, one of the things I often joke about is, you know, being raised Indian and Catholic, we are the masters of guilt. Um, so part of my practice is not feeling guilty about everything in, yes. in life and then not uh, continuing the legacy of guilt by guilting my kids to do things and all sorts yes. of things. You know? Right. Because so, um, you know, that conditioning runs... Deep. deep and it yeah and, and when we see it as a as a we versus an i yeah you know this is conditioning that showed up in a context that goes back many generations and every family has that you know there's there's yes. stuff that's awesome and there's stuff that as i like to say less than ideally skillful <laughs> <laughs> Aretha um, McPherson has this amazing quote that I that I lean on a lot, um, if not daily, several times a week. Um, and the quote, you know, and her words, uh, you know, share the broken pieces of our lives are nothing more than the beautiful mosaic of our future. Oh, that is awesome. And I think I about really all the like edges of, of brokenness or wounds that we carry in different moments and experiences and just really kind of thinking about all this is part of our path and journey. And these are all learnings for us to, you know, that are, that are building over time, which will be our beautiful mosaic of yes. our future. So I'm going to, I'm going to pivot it a bit. We've, we've touched on it. You know, what is your, you know, what is your take and what is your, uh, practice what's your experience with your work around how mindfulness how compassion how the community aspect can address where we are around let's say race let's focus on race so here I am I stand before you as a woman of color first generation Indian American you know yeah. raised by um, devoted and hardworking immigrants you know who immigrated from here uh, originally from India and um, have 
you know, I've personally faced systemic uh, barriers and challenges as well as traumas uh, of various sorts. Though my, you know, my father came to the U.S. to pursue his third graduate degree. He was a university professor, um, you know, here in the U.S. And then at that time, then brought several of our relatives over as well. So my mom is the oldest of 12 and wow. many of her brothers and sisters also came to live with us and their families. And uh, I'm one of the 30 first cousins and just my Whoa. mom's side alone. So we have a, a very happy, large um, Indian family, uh, which yes. is one of our biggest blessings. Um, but also learning how to you know, navigate many relationships with many personalities and many people. And so that, for us is the practice, right? So when I think of mindfulness practice, I think of family. I yeah. think of the diverse array of uh, generational, both wisdom and um, ritual and practice and togetherness that that represents. So for me, mindfulness is not about individual practice. It is absolutely yes. about community and practice. And so as someone who leans into this work in a very personal way, in a personal yeah. manner, in a personal lens, um, you know, there has been an opportunity for me to articulate matters of race within the last two years uh, than I have ever before. And um, it, it has allowed Ivy Child and myself and our 100%, you know, POC led both board and staff who yeah. offer our programming in both a uh, culturally and linguistically responsive manner to really stand in our truth yes. and to really um, not just have a seat at the table because I think this moment that we are in nationally and otherwise where you know, um, you're invited to have a seat at the table as mm -hmm. a POC leader, as a woman of color, as a POC led organization, yeah. You know, there's a lot of requests for partnership and alignment. However, it's not just about having that diversity of thought or inclusion by way of just having that seat at the table. But I think part of equity is allowing our communities and the communities that we represent, because not only do we represent them, we are them. We, we are, are the You are them, yes. <laughs> yes. And so allowing our community to not just have a seat at the table, but help chart the course of their own future, of yeah. their own um, health plans, of their own opportunities to close gaps and build bridges. So there is an access to both health, educational, and other, you know, healing resources that our community needs so much now more than ever. Yes. Um, and I think there is an intentional courage and care um, that we bring and that I see the community leaning into uh, bringing uh, in a way that is really allowing room for healing in a way than ever before. That's amazing. I'm, I'm going to bring up something that I know that I haven't heard, and maybe I'm just not listening broadly enough, which I fully acknowledge that may be the case. You know, I hear and read a lot in, you know, the media, but then in even in the mindfulness world, the, you know, the literature, you know, like from a uh, perspective of practice that is focused on the non-focus of non-duality, that there is no separation in any given moment. And the different uh, contemplative traditions focus on this, you know, so to not be long-winded that, well, 
aren't we just focusing too much on labels and words and you know distinctions that inherently aren't what is you know focusing on hues of skin tone that inherently just you know that's not the truth of awareness you know those are things that are you know that are not the essence of reality and i hear this sort of thing and this is not my take on it this is what <laughs> i'm relaying it and yet you know in my own work as a clinician as a you know you know member of the majority you know from a very middle class entitled background I had the luxury to, for many years, hear things like that or things similar around. There's too much focused on PC stuff, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and just yeah, 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 you know, and not really focus on it because that's the privilege, you know, unrightly so, of being in the majority. You just don't have to focus on it if you don't, you know. There's it's not in your your consciousness. And I think I think the point I want to make, is, and this is this has been a point of painful practice for me to be aware of how often I did gloss that over, and not pause to consider that it's not just the language in these moments, it's not just the the labels of different groups, and not hide behind anything around. Oh well, there's a perspective on this where that's really just not relevant because we all just are beings of awareness because in any given moment when you're interacting with someone it's not just the language that they're using it's not just their individual history it's not just the immediate situation around you when you're you're interacting with them it is that that intergenerational you know experience that can often be full of pain that is there in that moment and if we're going to be beings of awareness, if we're going to really be practitioners of this stuff, you need to acknowledge not just the, the words people are using and, and be willing to speak past them. You have to be willing to speak authentically about the pain and invite the pain and, and the struggle that others are experiencing and may have and have experienced for generations and then be willing to stay put in that conversation. And I think yep. that just does not get talked about enough, in my opinion. Agreed, it does not. And I think that's part of what makes our efforts in advancing uh, intersectional equity and intersectionality really, you know, um, examines, you know, power dynamics, you know, transcending communities, practices, realms of society and is grounded in application and practice um, whereby we go a step further, right? Than recognizing um, each other, but valuing, right? Each person's, each person's multiple identities and intersectionalities uh, yes. of make of what makes us who we are because each of us has such a unique story. Yes. Each of us has unique experiences on this journey of life. And so equity then allows us to exhibit through an open invitation, right? To participate in an, uh, really un what should be an <laughs> unbiased, you know, 
access and co-creation and collaborative way uh, to those directly impacted and um, by building strategies and programs and infrastructure for institutions and communities and systems that are you know, collaboratively with the communities that we're serving, right? So yes. co-creating that together, I think is so essential and recognizing and acknowledging um, their unique history and stories. And I think that if we don't honor that, if we don't embrace that and understand that and lean in with an ongoing willingness and caring to learn, that will be a great disservice in this work of mindfulness and in this work of serving serving our community. I, so I, kind of have, having that humility and leaning in is really essential because we, I, I, we may not have all the answers. That's right. And I think without that, uh, the equity without, and if it's only like around diversity, around race, if it's only done in name to check off a box, right? right? you know, then it isn't true co-creation. And, and even if we're bringing mindfulness practices to bear and disseminating them, if it isn't attending to that true equity co-creation, it'll eventually just become this stale thing that's trying to, you know, get people de-stressed. It won't be embedded in the truth and vibrance that includes the pain, you know, and the possibilities in people's lives, right? Yes. So, so this, this is so important. There's a term that I use in my own work that I'm doing right now around uh, helping people stay in difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. Some of the, the, the content that I'm creating that isn't really mine, it's just me you know, putting things forward, that we need to be able to skillfully speak equivalence that in any given moment at a micro level, when it's just like you and me, there is a, uh, I call it the undeniable truth that is here in, you know, in my present moment experience. And it is equivalent to the undeniable truth that is in your experience. So whatever thoughts are showing up, whatever body sensations are showing up, images in the mind, you know, and then the showing up of the press of any pain points that may have been very, very old, the needs that are there to address those pain points. You put all that together, that's undeniable truth. And we have mm. to be able to speak that that is equivalent. There's no, there's no rank, there's no better than it's, you know, if it's another human being, no matter who it is, they have a truth that is equivalent in any interaction. And are, are, are we as people in a community willing to lean in and hear truth in ways yes. that might cause discomfort to some folks? <laughs> you know, uh, can we work through, can we be comfortable with being uncomfortable? Yes. Um, because I think coming in and leaning in with that level of willingness and care and concern and notice the comfort that arises within us, you know, noticing our own either unknowing or suffering, you know, whatever that might be. And I think for us, you know, so many of us, you know, how do we continue to address our own pain and suffering while harboring hope, right? How do you mm. have hope for relationships and these courageous conversations? How do you have hope for humanity? You know? Yes. 
uh, and the systems, hope in the systems and um, wanting to seek and ad continuing to advocate for systemic change, uh, particularly around advancing social justice. You know, I think, uh, you know, I have a small acronym that I share in, in our teaching where, you know, we're, we're seeking to heal through hope, you know, and it's the mm -hmm. acronym of hope, you know, opening our hearts and minds, planting seeds and encouraging ourselves and others to stay on the right path. Because it. it is so often than not that it is so easy to succumb to sometimes destructive coping mechanisms or, or things that don't nourish, but rather deplete us or might mm. be momentary pleasure, but lack meaning. But right. can we really stay committed to harboring and exercising hope and really keeping a truly open hearted mind? Again, planting seeds, continuing to invest our energy and time and devotion into encouraging both ourselves and others that we care for to stay on the right path. And that's something that I even meditate on, <laughs> you know, daily myself, depending on the day, you know, yeah, when I beautiful. need that little extra edge of, of hope and healing. That's beautiful. You know, Rose, I know, I know we're low on time. I want to uh, thank you for this conversation. You know, I, I really do appreciate it. How can people find out more about your work? Where, where can they go? Thank you, Mitch. Um, so they can find out more about Ivy Child at ivychild.org. It's I-V-Y-C-H-I-L-D.org. We're also on Facebook and Instagram uh, and Twitter, but we're probably most active on our Facebook channel, but, yeah. uh, you know, and we're also on LinkedIn, but definitely open to building connect connections and relationships with our community. So feel free to reach out to me uh, on those channels as well, uh, as well as with our, with our Ivy Child family. We'd be delighted to build more community relationships and connections. And I just want to thank you for your time, Mitch. It's always a delight to be with you and share some time together. Thank you, Rose. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of the Prize of Possibility. I hope you found things of benefit here. If so, please consider giving this show a positive review. Such feedback is not only great to hear, um, it also really helps elevate the show so that others can find benefit from it. Please stay tuned, more episodes, some great guests on the way so that we can together discover these true life prizes in daily life. Take care.